I would ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation. So we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 to 21. Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 to 21. Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 to 21. Please then hear with me the reading of God's holy word. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Thus far is a reading of, of God's Word. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm sure that all of you have, have probably been surprised before in your lives. Uh, perhaps you've had a, a surprise birthday thrown for you. Or maybe you've thrown a surprise anniversary party for your spouse. But those were surprises that were good for all the parties involved, weren't they? Right? Those surprises were, were welcomed by all the parties. But the surprise that we read about in our text this morning is not something that is viewed as good by all the parties involved. In fact, the surprise that we read about in our text this morning is not something that will be welcomed by all the parties involved. Because this surprise is going to bring down right, once and for all the beast and the false prophet and, and all who bear the mark of the beast. This is the surprise return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which was spoken about back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, where John says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him in all the tribes of the earth will wail 
on account of Him. Now, brothers and sisters, one of the reasons that I believe that people will be surprised when Christ returns is because for many, they now believe that Christ is dead. There are many people in the world who believe that Jesus existed. Right? That He was born as a man. That He lived a good life. That He should be a good example to follow after as He taught right, love and peace and, and unity. But Rome ended up getting angry with Him, crucifying Him, killing Him, and then He died. But that's all they believe about His life. Even though they know that He has followers who proclaim that He was placed into the tomb on the Friday and that He resurrected on the Sunday and that He showed Himself to over 500 people and ascended on high with the promise of returning again. But so much of this world does not believe in the supernatural and so they reject that part of the story. For others, I think that Christ's return will be a surprise not because they don't expect Him to return, but it will be a surprise for them in the, in the manner in which He returns. They will be surprised by the manner in which He returns. For when people think about Jesus today, what oftentimes comes to mind? Now, when people think about Jesus, there are often very one-sided thoughts about Jesus. And when people think about Jesus, they say, Jesus is someone who loves everyone equally in the same. Right? Jesus is, is someone who wants everyone to be happy. When people think of Jesus, they usually think about Him too, I think, as maybe a timid or a, or a shy guy. Right? They think of Jesus as someone who, who overlooks everyone's sin. A Jesus who is definitely anti-war. A Jesus who would never seek vengeance on anybody. Right? A Jesus who when He returns is going to gather everybody and bring everyone back to heaven with Him. And if you told them otherwise, if you said, I don't think that's the case, they would say, well, well look to His first coming. Right? How did Jesus act and behave in His first coming? Right? They say he, he came as this baby. And he, he grew up as a man in stature. Right? And He grew in knowledge and wisdom. And He went about in His earthly ministry healing people. Right? Showing great care and concern for all people. Right? Feeding people. Right? Feeding the 5,000. Right? When Jesus on earth in His first coming was reviled, He didn't revile in return, did He? In fact, Jesus prayed for His enemies. When Jesus was captured by those who wanted to put Him to death, He did not struggle with them. He allowed Himself to be mistreated. So much so that He willingly went to the cross and died for us. And I think Jesus, for many, in His, in his first coming, is someone who they conceive of as, as a very passive person. Right? Jesus was very passive. For many, I think they only think of Jesus, even today, only in His state of humiliation. Right? That is the only Jesus they know. And so for them, it will be a surprise when Christ returns. For when Christ returns, He will return as the exalted one. Right? When Christ returns, he, he will not return in a state of humiliation. Right? He will not return in lowliness. And He will not return with His glory veiled, but rather, as Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, that when Christ returns, when He is revealed from heaven, that He is coming with His mighty angels in flaming fire. 
That He is coming to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we probably all know people who we think that we know really well. But then something happens in their life that brings some, something else out of them. And you say to yourself, I never knew they had that in them. You know, I think of, of those stories of the mothers who can lift cars off their children when they're stuck underneath. And you say, I never knew she had this, the strength to do that. She never worked out a day in her life. Right? I think, brothers and sisters, that, that this is going to be the same thing that many people will say when Christ returns because they're not going to recognize Him because when Christ returns, He will return as the warrior king. Right? When Christ returns, He is returning as the warrior king. But people have no excuse for not recognizing how He will return. Right? They have no excuse for not in anticipation waiting for the warrior king to come because Scripture is replete with passages and texts that tell us this is how He's going to come. In Amos chapter 5, verse 18, we read this, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into his house, leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. In verse 24, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. All of us here today have probably seen images or watched videos of mudslides and volcanic eruptions, haven't we? And what do you see? What you see is from mountaintops, right? the mud or the volcanic ash coming down and just clobbering everything in its sight, making it to be no more, causing what was to, to no longer be, causing it all to perish and to disappear under its ever-flowing streams of mud and lava. Well, brothers and sisters, this is what we will see at Christ's second advent. Right? At His first coming, what did, he see, what did Jesus say? He said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But here in His second coming, His just judgments and His perfect righteousness are going to flow down like ever-flowing streams out of Mount Zion as He comes to lay waste and to destroy all of those who have stood in His way. And that's the image then we need to see depicted for us in our text. The image of the warrior king Jesus. And it's this imagery then that we want to further unpack in our text this morning to see how Jesus is warrior king. Because although that day will be darkness for many, it will also be light for some. In fact, the day that Christ returns will be the most glorious day for the church, will it not? It will be the most glorious day for the bride of Christ because what do we have to look forward to? And we looked at this just a, a week or two ago, in the, the marriage feast of the Lamb. But that is not what everyone has to look forward to. And so, with that being said, let us look at our first point this morning, which is this. We'll call it the warrior king returns. 
the warrior king returns. Now here in verse 11, we immediately see the imagery of the warrior king, don't we? Immediately we see it. The heavens opened up and a white horse, and there's this one who comes riding upon the white horse. And immediately we have this imagery of the, of the warrior king. And as the saints living in the first century heard this, they could have easily understood this reference. Why? Well, because the, the color white, first of all, is not just a symbol for purity and for holiness. The color white is also symbolic for victory. Right? It's also symbolic for victory. Right? The color white also represents the victorious or triumphant warrior. In fact, this is why in the first century, when the Romans would have conquered other nations, would have, have, had a, uh, would have won uh, battles in war, what the saints living at the time would have seen was, was them come back, the, the Roman soldiers in the Roman Empire, riding triumphantly through a parade on white horses. Right? Because those white horses were symbolic of their great victory. And so the saints living in the first century would have immediately identified this reference right? as a triumphant warrior riding in. Now as Caesar, though, would have, would have rode in on his white horse, right, the people were told to say, right, you are worthy, you are worthy, our Savior and our God. Now, of course, this is not something that the, the saints would ever say. For they give their praise alone to the, to the one true God. And we seen last week what the saints will say when Christ returns triumphantly, which is what? Hallelujah! Right? Hallelujah! For salvation and power and glory belongs to the Lord. Right? Hallelujah! As the smoke of Babylon goes up forever and ever. Hallelujah! For the Lord reigns. That is what the saints will cry out when our Lord returns on His triumphant white horse. And he will be called, we're told, faithful and true. Why? Why faithful and true? Well, because when Christ returns, he will have fulfilled his every promise to his people. I remember what it was that he, he promised to the saints in Matthew 24. Right? How the end of the age would not come until all of the elect are saved. When Christ returns, that will have been fulfilled. Remember in Matthew 24, verse 14, as Jesus answers the apostles' questions concerning the end of the age, what does He say? And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Right? And so He returns in victory upon His triumphant white horse as the one who is faithful and true, because all of those who He died to redeem whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, have now been saved. Right? And so He is faithful and true in the fulfillment of His promise. He also, brothers and sisters, though, is called faithful and true. Why? Well, because the text tells us that in His righteousness He judges and makes war when He returns. This too is what Jesus tells us would happen. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus promises this saying, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay to each one what he has done. Right? Jesus says, when I return, I'm bringing my recompense to, re to return to man what is owed to him, what is due to him for his sin. This is the same thing Paul declares to the men of Athens 
In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, he says, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. Now we see more imagery depicted for us in our text of, of Jesus as warrior king as we're told He likewise has eyes like flaming fire. Now remember, brothers and sisters, throughout the book of Revelation, what is continually being referenced? Not just the Old Testament, but in particular, the book of Daniel. Right? The book of Daniel is constantly being referenced. And some from the picture of that judicial figure of the Ancient of Days. And so those attributes in Daniel 7 of the Ancient of Days we see now being ascribed to Jesus. As Jesus is being depicted as He who will come as the latter day divine judge. In fact, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 12, the Ancient of Days is, is said to be sitting upon what? A throne that is a flaming fire with wheels burning a fire, all which conveyed to us, right? The picture of, of a, of a king who is sitting on his throne who is judging all the nations. And now what? It is Jesus' role to come as judge with all power and authority as He comes with eyes like flames of fire. Right? Jesus Himself says this right, about Himself. In Revelation chapter 2, if you remember, to His letter to the church in Thyatira, what does He say? The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. And if you remember what's going on in, their, in that church, right, their idolatry, uh, the teachings of Jezebel that they were allowing to, to, to permeate the church. Right? The message to that church was what? It was you can't both serve God and become idolaters at the same time and think that you can get away with it. That the Son of Man will not see it and will not come and will not punish you for it. Right? And now, Jesus is said to have eyes like a flame of fire. Which means that as He returns here this final time, with that penetrating sight by which He sees all things, right? the heart of man, the heart's condition, every sin that man has ever committed, He is coming to judge and punish man for that sin. And that is what is depicted for us in the imagery of our text today. And He can do it. Why? Because He is King of the nations. That is likewise what is depicted for us in the sense that we are told Jesus comes wearing many diadems. Right? He comes wearing many crowns. Now remember, who likewise in the book of Revelation wears many crowns? The beast and the dragon. Right? But what were they trying to do? They were trying to mimic Christ, weren't they? Right? Those crowns that they wore represented their, their false claim of sovereign authority over the earth. But when Christ returns, right, He will return as true King and as mighty warrior. He will destroy everyone who has ever tried to usurp His authority and steal His throne. Now, one thing we need to understand is that when Christ returns, though, He doesn't become ruler. Right? Christ right now is ruler. So when He returns, what is going to happen is He is now going to enforce what He already is by taking possession of all the nations. right? Not allowing one inch to the devil to be able to, to create another army to attack our Lord. And so these crowns that the warrior king comes wearing then, we need to see, right, represent His sovereign rule, right, His, His sovereign authority over every area of life. 
heaven and earth, that which is visible and that which is invisible. We need to see this. That He will come wearing the crown as King of heaven. Why? That is His dwelling place. But brothers and sisters, He will also come wearing the crown as King of hell as well. For there will be no power in hell than that which is His own. Right? For even in hell He will rule, yet with wrath and with fury and anger and His power. He will also come wearing the, the crown of grace though, as He is the one who dispenses grace to whomever He pleases. He will also come with the crown as, as King over all the nations, as He is able to to cause the nations to to come into derision. He is able to take the hearts of kings and and sway them however He pleases, isn't He? He likewise will come wearing a a crown as as King of creation. He is King of creation as He is the One who created all things. For Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. He will likewise come wearing King of His church. Being King as His church as He is the One who came and suffered and died for her and bought her to be His own possession. He will also come then, brothers and sisters, wearing crowns of victory over the devil and over sin and over death, having conquered them all. And so, brothers and sisters, I call upon us all, when when you see what goes on around you in this world and you grow dissatisfied with with the perversion of this world, I ask all of you to continue to look to His many crowns. Right? Continue looking to His many crowns. See the glory of Christ's crowns. Right? See the glory of our King. When your souls are discouraged at what you see, remember His many crowns. Right? Remember His, His many crowns when this, our cities, when our state, when our country when our employers, when our friends, when our co-workers, when our family members forsake God for the unrighteousness of the world, remember His crowns. Right? Children, young adults, men and women, right? remember His crowns and remember who wears the crowns when your friends right, try to get you to do things that you know that God forbids. Remember His many crowns. Be encouraged. Let your hearts not be sad. Knowing that what is described must take place. It must take place. What does Paul tell Timothy? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12-15, to he says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make one wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Likewise, saints here today, I want you to be encouraged, knowing that when Christ returns, He will also come wearing the crown of your own heart, as He is King of your heart if you are a believer here today, as it is Christ Himself who removed the tyrant ruler from your heart and replaced Himself there in your heart, granting you the faith to believe, causing love to spring forth out of your hearts for God, 
empowering us by His Spirit to follow the Lamb wheresoever He goeth. Which is oftentimes the opposite direction that your peers, right? your friends, your co-workers in this world wants you to go. It is this crowned Savior, brothers and sisters, that we need to understand who is coming one day. And when He comes, He's going to crown you for His own achievement. Right? When Christ comes again, He is going to crown you, but He will crown you for His own achievement. And so likewise, we know that He who is coming is faithful and true will do it because His promises cannot fail. Right? For He has said He will do it. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus says this, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This also means what then? Then when Christ returns, He will be wearing the crown of life. And it's at that time as, as king over life that He will open the doors to the heavenly city. Right? He will open the doors to eternal life and everlasting felicity with Him. And He will bid you His people to come in and to take your seat with Him. This is what, brothers and sisters, you have awaiting you when Christ returns. In verse 13, though, we're told what? That He is coming though clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. Now, this is a quotation that comes from Isaiah chapter 63. Please turn in your Bibles with me there. Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63. We'll begin in verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. You see the fulfillment of that text here in Christ's final return. And so it is undoubtedly whose blood that is on the robe of Christ when He returns. It's the blood of His enemies, isn't it? As Christ comes as, as warrior king, and as He comes, we're told that all of the mighty angels and all of the saints who are arrayed in, in the fine linen will, will follow behind Him, likewise on white horses. Symbolizing what? Our identification with Christ as being triumphant and victorious with Him as well. And as we do, we're told in verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, which he will use to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. We're not going to go over all these again because we've, we've looked at many of these already before in our study. But as you know, these, these are quotations, allusions to other texts pulled from Psalm 2, from Isaiah 11, and from what we just read in Isaiah 63. 
Now, as we read those, though, we, we put those together and we, we see this, this depiction. What we're not to understand is that this is a, a literal battle. Remember, the book of Revelation is a book that is full of symbols. Right? It is ap- apocalyptic in nature. Uh, and so this is figurative language. We're not to expect that when Christ comes, there's going to be some civil war. Right, we're not to expect that there's going to be you know, World War I going on or World War II going on again. Why is that? Well, because Christ doesn't need weapons to destroy His enemies. All He needs is the power of His Word. Think about Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. This is what we're told. He will strike the earth with the rod of what? The rod of His mouth. And with the breath of His lips, He shall kill the wicked. You see, when the Lord returns, the Lord is coming with the law on His lips. Right? He is coming with the law on His lips. And if you have not had the judgment that was due to you for your sin done to Christ already, when Christ returns, He will do the judgment of your sin upon you Himself. That's what's going to happen. This is why though John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees to flee from the wrath to come. Because as we read in our text today, the wrath that is coming is great. It is terrible. It is frightening. It is eternal. And it is soul-tormenting. And the only way to escape it, brothers and sisters, is if you have fled to Christ by faith and repentance, having your sin forgiven, and now you live relying on the conquering power of He who is the Word of God. Because it's that same power that came to you in the Word that likewise is going to come upon the ungodly when Christ returns. And at that time, He will justly judge the world according to His Word and because they have rejected His Word and have rejected He who is the Word of God. Take courage, brothers and sisters. When Christ returns, the truth of His Word will prevail. It will triumph. Right now, we we live in a time in which it seems like, like falsehood triumphs, doesn't it? Like lies triumph. Like deception triumphs. But when Christ returns, truth once and for all shall prevail as Christ will put an end to all deception and all falsehood and all lies and even all of the subjective truths that people now live their lives by. And in doing so, He will demonstrate that what is written upon His robe and upon His thigh is true. And what is that? We read in verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This leads us to our second point then, which will be our final point as well this morning, which is the warrior king's final battle. We looked at his return. Let us look now at the final battle that he will engage in. Look with me please at verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men from both free and slave, both small and great. Now, brothers and sisters, I ask that you turn over with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 39. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 39. 
And we'll start in verse 17. Ezekiel 39, verse 17. There we read this. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Assemble and come. Gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of the he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at My table with horses and charioteers with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord. Now the battle that's being described here in Ezekiel 39 is the battle against Gog. Where the, the prophet is calling upon the beasts of the field to feast upon the defeated enemy. And now that imagery of Ezekiel 39 is being alluded to in our own text. Now again, we are not to interpret this as a literal feasting in our text upon the carcasses of human beings when Christ returns. Right? But rather, that imagery is supposed to convey to us the spiritual reality of what? Right? It's supposed to convey to us the reality that God's enemies have most certainly been defeated. Right? It's a certain, it's a, it's a sure thing. It has happened. Right? The, the picture of these birds feasting on the carcasses of the defeated enemy is a picture then of, of God's divine retribution against those who have been slain by His judicial sword. Right? That's what this is a picture of. Now look with me at Revelation 19.19. 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Let me ask you this. Where else has this been depicted before? Where else has this been depicted before? This is not the first time that we've read this. Where else did the beast gather the nations to, to fight against Christ and His people? How about the battle of Armageddon? The battle of Armageddon, which demonstrates one more time, as, I, as we've been seeking to demonstrate throughout our entire study, that the book of Revelation is not a chronological book. It's a series of visions, parallel visions, depicting the same reality from different viewpoints, from different vantage points. Which is also why, as we look at Revelation chapter 20 in a couple weeks, you're going to see something eerily familiar to what we're reading today. Look over at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to do what? To deceive the nations that are met at the four corners of the earth. What? Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven, consumed them, and the devil has, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever. Revelation 27 through 11. Revelation 19, 17 to 21, depicting the exact 
same thing. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because at the end of both battles, there are no more people alive. No more people exist. Look at verses 20 and 21 now with me of our text. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done false signs and deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, and then the rest were slain. Everybody by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged in their flesh. That's everyone. That's the end. Finality. Right When he returns, it will be open and for all to see. But as we've said time and time again, everybody bears one of two marks in this world. Right? You are either sealed by the Spirit or you are marked by the beast. Right? You either fight alongside the warrior king Jesus or you belong to the armies of this world, the enemy's armies. And so what we see described in our text today is a universal battle where there will be no survivors on the enemy's side. Right, what we read in our text today then is the eschatological fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Right, that's what we read in our text today. But what I also want you to see though is, is see the difference between the two feasts that we've read about over the last two weeks. Right, one of the feasts is what? It's going to be a glorious feast, won't it? It's going to be a feast in which the people of God celebrate. It is a feast that we long after and, and want to come. Right, we desire the feast to come. Look at the other feast, though. It's not even really a feast for people, is it? It's a feast for the birds. Right? The people of that feast are going to be the feast. And so there will be no celebration. There will be no joy. There is no longing for that day to come for them. And so I ask, brothers and sisters, ask yourself, which day and which feast right, do you want to participate in? Right? What, what feast do you want to partake in? This is why, though, if you believe... You have nothing to worry about now. Right? You have no reason to fear. No reason to worry. Nothing to have anxiety over. As Christ reveals to you the end already. Right? He reveals to you how things will play out. Right? Because Christ the warrior king has already won, so too have you. Right? So too have you. For those of you though, who have yet to come to saving faith in Christ, see your need for Christ. Right? See your need for Christ. Because see what's going to happen to the children of disobedience. Right? See what will be their end. And know this, that, that Christ is going to be your King whether you live in heaven or in hell. See then that He is the King of all ages. Right? See the, the good He does for all His people. And see the good that He will do for you if you but cry out for Him in faith and repentance as He promises to do that same good for all who believe. And just as many of the Jews were cut to the heart after hearing Peter's sermon at Pentecost, right, they asked Peter, what then shall we do? Seeing the, their sin and their need for Christ, what did He say? That response He gave to them, I now give to you. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See this, to not do so is utter folly. It's utter folly. Look at, look at what's going to happen to the kingdom of this world. Right now it is falling and one day it shall perish forever. But look at what the King of heaven and earth does for you 
who belong to His army. Right? He defeats your enemies. When all the nations gather and line up against you, He is going to protect you. Right? Christ is not some pacifist. Right? He's not a coward who when He sees the, the number of the enemy's army that He runs the other way. In fact, what does Christ do? He runs towards the battle. Right? He runs at the enemy. He stands up for His servants. He protects His people. And He avenges the blood of the saints. This is why though Jesus tells us right now, brothers and sisters, that it is not our job to pick up physical weapons and try to slay our enemies, is it? Right? This is why He says, do not repay evil for evil, but to give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all people. It's because now is not the time for that. Jesus is awaiting for that time. And He wants us to remember this, that as He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, vengeance is Mine. Right? I will repay, says the Lord. And so the question is, do you trust Him in that? Or do you trust His Word? Oh, what a king we have, huh? But also, what a, what a warrior we have who stands beside us. Perhaps some of you before today have not thought of Jesus in this way as a, as a warrior king. I hope today you see why He is and why you should. It's the same reason that Moses declares this. After Jesus, or I should say after God, right, uh, delivers the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians. In Moses' song in Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, this is what Moses and the Israelites cry out. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. So right now, brothers and sisters, if you're getting frustrated, if you get frustrated in this world seeing how the name of Christ is being forgotten, right, how the name of our Lord is being blasphemed, Right, don't be discouraged. Remember that, that a day is coming when God will make His name known to all people. Right, he will make His name known to all. All will confess it for when the warrior King Jesus returns, every knee will bow and they will pay Him the homage that is due to Him. Now for some, this message is one of joy. Right, for others, this message is one that elicits maybe anger or fear. After reading our text today, I think we can see why. Right? For when Christ returns, He is either going to be warrior king for you or He is going to be warrior king against you. When Christ returns, may He be a warrior king on our side. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for these consoling words that You have given to Your people this day. We ask, Lord, that our hearts be encouraged by them that they would help us as we are wanderers in a wilderness right now, uh, being brought through the Exodus, uh, waiting for our home, which is the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, we pray that You would help to, to empower us to, to think back upon these things in the midst of suffering and in persecution. And when we are brought low in our spirit by what we see going on around us, remind us that, that Christ currently reigns and that Christ is, is going to come. And as He does, he will, he will take all things back for Himself openly before all. And Lord, we pray that when that time comes, that He will come as, as warrior king, as that man who will fight on our side. And that He will say to us, well done, my good and 
faithful servant and He will crown us because of His own achievement and will bring us to glory with Him. And so, Father, we come before You asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.